Good morning, everyone. Uh, I just first want to thank the session again for asking me to uh, speak this morning. I'm incredibly humbled and honored uh, to be doing that. And uh, I have the great privilege this morning to uh, be speaking about my journey into covenant theology and uh, God's gracious work in bringing me into that. And so uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on specific things because there's so much that I want to be able to talk about. But I hope that if I'm asked to talk in the future, I'd like to take these things individually and examine them closer. But for now, I just want to give kind of a summary of my journey into covenant theology and what, I've, what God has shown me, and hopefully share with you encouragement if you're working through your understanding as well. And so I'd like to begin, actually, by opening with a passage of Scripture. And so if you would, please turn with me to the book of Psalm. We'll be in Psalm 25. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14. Psalm 25, starting in verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Uh, We ask this morning that you would bless our time here, and that the Spirit would be renewing our minds and reforming our hearts to the beauty of your word. I ask that I would be made nothing and that you would be made everything as I have the privilege of sharing with your people. And together, that through the power of the Spirit, we would see this glorious beauty of our God of covenant who condescended to us, redeemed us to yourself, all to the praise of your glorious grace. So we ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. So when speaking on the topic of covenant, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in what I came from, because I'd like to talk about that in the future, but this morning when speaking on the topic of covenant, there were several go-to passages that people informed me of in my journey into covenant theology, and I'll just give you a few of them. Uh, We see God establishing covenants throughout scripture. We see God uh, establishing a covenant with Noah in Genesis 6, 18, when he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your son's wives with you. We see God cutting a covenant in, Abraham, uh, in Genesis 15 with Abraham. When he says, uh, when scripture says, And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. We see it, uh, a covenant ratified with the people of Israel, In Exodus 24, when Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. It is seen with David in 89.3, for signifying Christ as well, but also a covenant with David. And he says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, his seed I will establish forever and build uh, build up your throne to all generations. 
It is seen in the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, when it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it is also seen by our Lord himself when he, uh, in Luke twenty two twenty took the cup after supper, saying, this is, the, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And so we see from just these few scripture passages that our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is a God of covenant. And this testifies to the significance of that. And he has entered into covenant relationship with particular men of his choosing. But before we progress further into that, a foundational question in my journey into covenant theology was, what is a covenant? What is the importance of it? Why is it necessary? And how does that look practically in Scripture? Um, in a book that I brought, in O'Palmer Robertson's book, The Christ of the Covenants, he defines a covenant. And I would highly recommend this book also if anybody is interested in it. O'Palmer Robertson in his book defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenant relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond in blood, or a bond of life and death sovereignly administered. In its most essential aspect, a covenant is that which binds together. A covenant, in its essence, is a bond. Now, I saw that definition when working through the book. I saw that definition tying back into Scripture. I thought it fit perfectly. So if you would, please turn with me to Genesis 15, just so that we can examine this closer. Genesis 15, in talking about a bond in blood sovereignly administered, in Genesis 15, the phrase to make a covenant, or in the Old Testament, it translates to cut a covenant. This usage of the phrase cutting a covenant or to cut or cutting is seen not only in national Israel at the time, but also in the surrounding nations as well. Um, But it was not only the usage of the phrase, but also the rituals that associated the establishing of a covenant. As the covenants are made, animals are brought and they are cut in half in a ritual ceremony. And we see this in Genesis 15 when God cuts a covenant with Abram. And so let us read... This passage, Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who, come, one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but the birds he did not cut in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a great old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between these pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, in my own journey, one of the questions that I asked was, well, what is the importance of this? What is the importance of the cutting of animals, placing them on the sides of this valley, and letting the blood run down into the middle of this valley and literally creating a path of blood. What's the importance of this? So the division of the animals symbolizes what's a pledge to the death, in a way. This historically is called a suzerain-vassal covenant or a suzerain-vassal treaty. And it was a covenantal ceremony in which a suzerain, a king, and a vassal, his subject, would enter into covenant with one another. And in this covenant ceremony, there were blessings and cursings pronounced upon both parties. If I break the covenant, let this curse be upon me. If I keep this covenant, I will receive blessing. And so together, the suzerain and the vassal would agree to these terms. And then in this ceremony, this ritual ceremony, these animals would be cut, placed on opposite sides. The blood would flow down. And these two parties would walk the path of blood in a cutting of a covenant. And so, historically, there were two parties walking this path of blood together to make this covenant. And one of the things I noticed in Genesis 15 when I was beginning my journey was, where is Abram in this? If you look at verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. In this covenant... We do not see two parties walking this path of blood and cutting this covenant. We see one sovereign vassal, one sovereign king and lord walking this path of blood and cutting this covenant. It is as if God is saying, I will make, keep, and fulfill this covenant with you, Abram. In the same way that we see Christ walking the path of blood alone to Calvary, where he would offer up his life on the cross for the sins of his people. And where he was, as Isaiah 53 says in various places, he was bruised for our iniquities, was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin, for he shall bear their iniquity. He poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. And so once the covenant relationship has been entered into, 
Nothing less than the shedding of blood is required based upon, uh, to, to relieve the punishment incurred upon the party for covenant violation. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Well, Palmer Robertson, once again in his book, Christ of the Covenants, goes straight to the heart of understanding Christ's death being one of covenant. He says, it is in the context of covenantal death that the death of Jesus Christ must be understood. Christ's death was a substitutionary sacrifice. Christ died as a substitute for the covenant breaker. Substitution is essential for understanding the death of Christ. He died in the place of sinners. Because of covenantal violation, men were condemned to die. And Christ took on himself the curses of the covenant and died in the place of the sinner. His death was covenantal. And so in my own journey into covenant theology, in reading that book of Palmer Robertson, of covenantal violation and covenantal death. These terms stood out to me uh, and they brought into view the understanding of federal or covenantal headship. Uh, But before we examine that closer, in talking about covenant theology, I think it's best that we start at the foundation and then work our way to talking about federal headship or covenant headship. To fully, um, and once again, I wish that I had time to go through all of it in great detail, but unfortunately I don't. Uh, but I'll give you a brief summary and some of the aspects that really stood out to me in regards to these three covenants that I want to look at. And so the first being, this foundational covenant in covenant theology is called the covenant of redemption, uh, also known as the, the council of peace, or in the Latin, if you want to sound fancy, the pactum salutis. Um, This name is given to describe the eternal intertrinitarian covenant between the three persons of the Godhead in regard to redemption. This covenant is the foundation of covenant theology itself. Without this foundation, there would be no elect people of God, no incarnation of the Son, no cross, no resurrection, and no promise of heaven. This covenant is foundational because unlike most biblical covenants, This is made between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In eternity, without, as Herman Bovink puts it in his Reformed Dogmatics, without any human offering him advice or giving him a gift that he might be repaid. It is the triune God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit, who together conceive, determine, carry out, and complete the entire work of salvation. And so in a simple way, because Bavink at times is hard to understand, so I went to R.C. Sproul, a little bit easier to understand, and he explains it this way in a simple, practical, systematic way. He says, it is the Father who sends the Son into the world to redeem his people. It is the Son who accomplishes their redemption by his work of obedience, and it is the Spirit then who applies the work of Christ to his people. It is the Spirit who brings us to the Son, who reconciles us to the Father. So I wanted to, if you could, turn real quick in your hymnal to uh, page 850 in the Westminster Confession. We're going to look at chapter 3, section 5, and see what the Westminster Confession speaks about this covenant redemption. Page 850, chapter 3, section 5. 
So the Westminster Confession says this. Chapter 3, section 5. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to His eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of His mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, in my own journey and working through this, listening to Sproul, reading a couple other writers, one passage that instantly came to mind in regards to this covenant of redemption is Ephesians 1. And so if you would, please turn there with me. Ephesians 1, we're going to start in verse 3. And I think this is a a practical way of understanding this, in Scripture explaining it here. Thinking of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each accomplishing the work of redemption. Ephesians 1, verse 3, starting there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glory, uh, to the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose, of his, uh, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So in this passage for me, it was that realization of the Father chooses a people for himself. We see that in verses 3 through 6. The Son accomplishes the work of redeeming that people, verses 7 through 12. And we see the Spirit applying and sealing the work of Christ to his people, verses 13 and 14. And so, real quickly, one other thing that John Owen says, the great prince of the Puritans in his work, The Mystery of the Gospel Vindicated, he describes this covenant of redemption. I thought it was really, really well worded. He says, there are five major elements in this covenant. One, the Father as promiser and the Son as undertaker voluntarily agreed together in council to achieve a common purpose namely the glory of God and the salvation of the elect. Two, 
the Father prescribed conditions for this covenant, which consisted of the Son assuming human nature, fulfilling the demands of the law through his obedience, and suffering the just judgment of God for the elect in order to satisfy God's justice on their behalf. Three, the Father promised the Son that he would support him, and that if the Son accomplished the work given to him, he would achieve salvation and glorification for the elect. The Father confirmed these promises with an oath. Four, the Son voluntarily accepted these conditions and assumed the work as surety of the covenant. And five, the Father approved and accepted the work of the Son, who likewise laid claim to the promise made in the covenant. Now, Owen doesn't mention the work of the Spirit here, but elsewhere in his work, he does mention that it is the Spirit who causes Mary to conceive of the incarnate Christ. And it is also the Spirit, as we read in Ephesians 1, who applies the work of Christ to the elect. And so with this, this is why this covenant is foundational. Because it shows the beauty of our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Because it is the Father who sends the Son, the Son who accomplishes the work, and the Spirit who uh, gives the work of Christ to the elect. They conceive, determine, carry out, and complete the entire work of salvation, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, from this foundational covenant of redemption, I'd like to move into the covenant of works. Um, And in my own journey, coming from a non-covenantal understanding of Scripture, this one covenant was probably the longest one that took me to understand. Um, And once again, if we have time in the future, I'd like to examine these individually and talk about where I came from, what was my belief then, and where it is now. But the covenant of works, also known as the covenant of life or the covenant of creation, um, this specific covenant is the necessary background and foundation for the doctrine of justification and understanding federal or covenantal headship, like I mentioned earlier. And so, understanding the covenant of redemption, when God creates Adam, he is made imago Dei, in the image of God. And that means that God has committed himself to his creation to sustain them and to be God to them. By being made in the image of God, Adam and Eve are, by necessity, obligated to live a life of obedience They are to obey God in Genesis 1.28 when he commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And Adam is placed in the garden to tend and keep it. But it's important that we distinguish Adam's natural obedience to his covenantal obedience. And this is where another wonderful book, uh, Foundations of Covenant Theology by Lane Tipton, this came out last year, fabulous book, and he goes through and explains this, and so I would like to read a small portion of it in understanding the covenant of works and understanding why it's important that we distinguish Adam's natural obedience from his covenantal obedience. And so Lane Tipton says, Adam's natural obedience carried with it no positive verbal promise of the consummation of life in heaven. The reason for this was because God did not owe Adam anything. While Adam owed God everything, according to their natural creator-creature relationship, Adam by nature was a claimless creature of the dust, 
after he had done all that he could and rendered his heart to God in full, free, and sincere obedience, he would have only done what was required of him. Therefore, on account of his natural obedience, Adam could not make any claim upon God. It would only be by way of covenant, which God freely and sovereignly entered into with him, that life would be offered to Adam beyond earthly existence in Eden. If Adam is to have life, it must be given by way of creation. And if that life is to be advanced, it must come by the way of covenant. And so in Genesis 2, 15, 16, 17, we see the establishing of what we call the covenant of works between God and Adam. This covenant held the promise of life to Adam that would advance him from the state of probation, which we'll talk a little bit about, and into the state of glory. Um, Conditional upon his perfect obedience to that covenant. And so let us turn to Genesis 2. We can see this. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. We see the establishing of these, this covenant with Adam. Genesis 2, 15, 16, 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may eat, for you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Again, quoting Lane Tipton from his book. The covenant of works brings into view two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil can be called the probation tree or the tree of testing. The covenant of works brings about a period of testing for humanity. We see that in what we just read in Genesis 2. This probationary tree is ultimately for the good of Adam, since it was given to him to direct his steps to the highest heavens. If Adam walks in the steps that God has laid before him, by keeping his word, he will be led up the mountain of God in Eden to walk with the Lord, from probationary life to consummated life. On that mountain above is found the fruition and reward of the covenant of works. Adam comes from the creative hand of God, being oriented to heaven as his image bearer, and this covenant shows him that pathway forward. And so in understanding it, if Adam lives a life of perfect obedience to God's covenant that he has given him, he would graciously be given the tree of life, to eat of its fruit and to receive the gift of advancement into the state of glory. Now it's important that we understand that God did not owe Adam eternal life. God graciously condescended to enter into covenant relationship with his created image bearer and give to him the promised gift of eternal life. And so even in the covenant of works, it is one that God graciously enters into. As the Westminster Confession says in chapter 7, section 1, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, 
yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. And so this is where I mentioned federal headship or covenantal headship. This is where it's important to understand in the covenant of works. Because Adam, being the covenantal head, was not faithful to the covenant that God had given him. Adam violated the covenantal agreement with God and therefore, through his disobedience, became the covenant breaker. This position of being humanity's covenantal head means that uh, we are also covenant breakers and have violated the terms of the covenant of works. Once again, as the Westminster Confession says on page 852 in your hymnals, if you would like to turn there, uh, chapter 3, section, uh, chapter 6, sorry, section 3 and 6, on page 852, it says, They, Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from ordinary generation. Six, every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and, contra- uh, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God, and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. As humanity's covenantal head, Adam's violation of this covenantal agreement rendered the covenant of works ineffective in giving life for him and his posterity under Adam's headship. This covenant only brings death under Adam. And this is why it's important to understand federal headship or covenantal headship because in the covenant of works when Adam breaks this covenant God does not make a plan B this is why the covenant of redemption must be the foundational covenant because it takes into account the fall of man the foundational and eternal covenant of redemption is just that it is a covenant of redemption a people must be redeemed And that in order to redeem a particular people, there must be a new covenant head. There must be a true and better Adam. One who will not only live a life of perfect obedience to the covenant of works, but one who will be a substitutionary sacrifice for the covenant breaker. Because, as we read previously in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood there is no remission. And this is where the covenant of works is so important because Christ fulfills this covenant. In order for a particular people to be redeemed, he must bear the punishment for their violation of the covenant. If Christ had only come to die and bear the punishment for our covenantal violation, that would only place us back to the state of probation in the garden. It is by Christ's perfect life of obedience that we are now advanced into the state of glory. By his perfect life of obedience to the Father, Christ fulfills the covenant of works and receives the gift of advancement into the state of glory, and he graciously gives this to his people. 
And so we are saved by works, but not our own works. We're saved by the work of Christ. And this is a gracious work. And this, of course, leads into the third covenant, which is the covenant of grace. Uh, Now, fortunately, I don't have enough time, but I do want to read through one quote that I have here from Herman Boving in summarizing the covenant of grace, because it is only by grace that we are saved. He says this about the covenant of grace in his uh, book three of his Reformed Dogmatics. He says, This covenant begins immediately after the fall, as evidenced by Adam and Eve's shame in their nakedness, a sign of lost innocence. Guilt and shame reveal both God's wrath and his grace, but the latter is shown especially when God seeks out Adam and Eve to interrogate them. I want to turn there real quickly. Turn to Genesis 3. And then we'll go back and read Bavink. Chapter 3. Verse, we'll start in verse 8. In understanding the, the covenant of grace. Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, God, sorry, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, "Where are you?" So he said, "I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself." And he said, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat?" Then the man said, The woman whom you have given to me, she gave it to me, uh, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. We would say that this is where the covenant of grace begins. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So back to Bobby. God's mercy triumphs over judgment as he annuls the covenant made with evil and puts enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now the path of glory must pass through suffering for man and woman. In the promise of Genesis 3, we find the gospel in a nutshell, and in principle, the entire history of the human race. The covenant of grace comes with the demand of faith and repentance, which may in some sense be said to be its conditions. Yet, this must not be understood. God himself supplies what he demands. The covenant of grace is thus truly unilateral. It comes from God who designed, defines, maintains, and implements it. It is, however, designed to become bilateral, to be consciously and voluntarily accepted by believers in the power of God. In this covenant of grace, God's honor is not at the expense of but for the benefits of human persons 
by renewing the whole person and restoring personal freedom and dignity. The covenant of grace with Christ as the new head of humanity reminds us of the organic unity of the church. The covenant of grace reminds us that election is about not only individual persons, but also organic wholes, including families and generations. Therefore, some who remain inwardly unbelieving will, for a time, in the earthly administration and dispensation of the covenant of grace, be part of the covenant family, uh, the covenant people. The final judgment belongs to God alone, and in this life, the church must regard such with judgment of charity. So again, I, I wish that I had more time, but hopefully if I'm asked to speak again in the future, we can go through these covenants individually, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace, and fully flush out the beauty of these three. And uh, in my own journey, I, I hope that what I have said here this morning has hopefully given some substance to possibly some of you who might be working through the understanding of covenant and hopefully reaffirm your beliefs if you already hold to the view of covenant theology. Um, I know that, as I said, I did not spend much time speaking about my own journey. I'd like to do that in the future. But um, if you have any questions, I would be more than willing after the service to, to talk about them. In regards to what I read through, um, some of the resources, once again, uh, R.C. Sproul, huge, huge help. Uh, Foundations of Covenant Theology by Lane Tipton. Only about 130 pages, fairly easy reading. If you want a more difficult step, The Christ of the Covenants uh, by O. Palmer Robertson. Highly recommend. And then if you're odd like me, I just got a new book called Covenant Theology, uh, about 600 pages. <laughs> um, but I, I hope that uh, I've given us some things to think about and, and to work through in understanding the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Uh, and I'm so thankful to God in bringing me into the view of covenant theology. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of covenant. That in the covenant of grace, your Son, our Savior and Redeemer, fulfills the covenant of works. And by his perfect obedience in his life and his substitutionary sacrifice, in the place of the covenant breaker, he accomplishes the covenant of redemption in redeeming a people to yourself. It is truly by your grace alone that we are saved. And we thank you for that. Once again, I thank you for this time that you have given us here this morning. And I ask that you would bless the rest of your Lord's Day as your people gather to worship our great and glorious God of covenant. And I ask all of these things in the name of our covenantal head, your Son. Amen.